0: Hello there. Welcome to a brand new Arseblog Arsecast right here on Arsblog.com. Hope you're well. Hope you're well. I'm a little bit cheesed off because this is the second time that I've done the intro to this show. The first time, well, I mean, I have to say it's it's like a piece of art that has been lost to the world. Because for some reason, and for the second time this has happened to me this week, not to me, but it happened to somebody else, but I was kind of in charge of it, a whole recording just just didn't work. It was there. I saw it. I saved it. And somehow, I I don't know what happened, but it's gone. Forever. There's no reclaiming it. Nothing. Although I do have that time machine thing, don't I, on on my computer? I do. I have the time machine. I can go back in time and get it, but that seems like... That seems like an awful lot of hassle, and I've already started this again, so we we'll might as well just sort of keep going, I guess. Anyway, I do hope you're well. We're going to be talking about Arsenal on this podcast. As we do, it's a podcast about Arsenal, and um, we're going to have to discuss the midweek shenanigans, the failings in front of goal, 21 shots, no goals. There's a joke in there somewhere, isn't there, about drinking 21 shots and you know picking up penalty points or something. But you know, I just uh, I just can't be arsed. I don't have it in me. I don't have the gumption. I don't have the the will because it's been one of those weeks, Arsenal aside, where it's been testing, very testing. You won't know this, of course, unless you live in Ireland or you have, for some bizarre reason, a keen interest in in Irish politics. They've called a general election here. And I find general elections kind of irritating. Mostly, I have to say, because of, well, politicians. Because they're just, you know, a pain in the arse. Maybe there are some of you out there listening to this very podcast right now who have forged a career in politics, and maybe, maybe you're an okay person. Deep, deep down beneath the veneer of, like, saying what people... Want you to say that you're okay, I guess. But here, politicians fuck them. They're assholes, and the whole election is like a—it's a, it's a total Hobson's choice, because the government, well, they're shit and dickheads, and the opposition, they're also shit and dickheads. So I'm kind of in a position where you know I don't want to vote for for any of these people. We had one candidate called to the door the other day, and he said, I'm, I'm here on behalf of whatever political party it was. And I said, no, thank you. And he said, why not? And I said, uh, I don't agree with your policies. And he went, which ones? And I said, pretty much all of them. And he went, oh, oh. And he left, which was fine. I don't mind being honest with them, But the bigger problem, of course, is the posters. Posters, posters everywhere. And what is on the posters but pictures of politicians? Now, I have a theory about politicians. It may well be specific to Irish politicians. I haven't really given it much thought beyond these shores. But you know the way if there's an actor who is not, shall we say, conventionally handsome, whose face might be somewhat distinctive in its... Less than handsomeness, and you very often hear these people referred to as character actors, right? And that basically, they're just saying they're really kind of ugly. That's that's the way they say it. They're being diplomatic or whatever. But those people have realised, hey, I'm no Cary Grant, I'm no George Clooney, I'm no that guy from that film, the Drive film, the Goose guy. What's his name? Fuck it, I can't remember his name, but he's a goose. Ryan Gosling, that guy. They realize they're not him, and they say, hey, that's all right. I am who I am. I accept my face for what it is, and I will entertain the world through my performances, through my art, through my creativity. And I think they're fantastic. But politicians, these are the people who cannot accept the fact that they're basically hideous. Right? and the way that they decide to deal with having a face that looks like it's been put together from spare parts is not to entertain is not to create is not to give something back to the world it's to seize power this is how they compensate for for looking like something do you remember that kids game where you had to like you had to pick the eyes of one thing and a different nose and a, and a you know a different mouth and you know, all kinds of it? you just put it together and it looked hideous that's what they all look like and then What they do at election time is they put up pictures of themselves all over. Lamp posts, every street corner, traffic lights. There's a picture of this ugly person or that ugly person and that ugly person. And I'm like, I don't want to vote for any of you. Because if you vote for them and they get elected, what happens then? They're on the TV. They're on the radio all the time. They're in the newspapers. They're in the magazines. You have to look at them even more. And frankly... When it comes right down to it, do we not have the weight of evidence, like over the years of humanity, that the worst people to be making any decisions about anything are politicians? If you look back at it, right, they've got a track record of being absolutely shit all the time. What is every election based on? The same fucking things time and time again health service, unemployment, taxes. They've had fucking hundreds of years to sort this shit out, and they're no good at it. Now, that might be because, basically, they don't give a fuck about any of that stuff. They go into politics to, A, have some power, B, get a pension, make connections, and uh, make more money to gild their own lilies. They have the gildedest lilies anywhere, you know? So fuck these guys and fuck their posters. It's really annoying. So anyway, I'm... Um, That's been a trying part of this week for me. Thankfully, this election ends on February 26th. That's when the election is. So we don't have long, we don't have this huge, long campaign like they do in the States, which has been running for how the fuck long now? And it's it's in uh, October, the election. Of course, more people are interested in in U.S. politics because we all want to know if the crazy man is going to get in and blow up the world. So I think we have to, you know, take a, a vested interest in, in what goes on over there. But look, this will be the last Irish general election update on this podcast. I promise. Probably. Unless they put up more posters and stuff. In which case, I may have to have a another rant. Get the posters. Fuck off. So look, going back from that to what happened in midweek, drawing nil-nil with Southampton, taking all those shots, missing... All those great chances to score. Ah, oh, we should have scored. We really should have scored. I know the performance wasn't great, but we really should have scored. Mesut Ozil, that first one, right? I think he probably should have scored it, but I could see what he was trying to do. Like the ball over the top, the first touch was amazing, and the finish, I think he was just trying to put it either between the keeper's legs or just like either side of him a tiny bit. Because if that had gone in, let's face it, we, we could be talking about a candidate for one of the coolest goals of all time, because it would have been absolutely fantastic. The, uh, the first touch, just sublime. I wish he would have just been a bit more decisive with the finish, though. The second one, I think that's a miss. I think that's a big miss. People talk about the keeper making a save. I think he hit the ball at the keeper rather than the keeper making a save. I'll draw a parallel with the game against uh, Liverpool. Oh, sorry. Uh, The game against Liverpool earlier in the season, and you might remember that the ball was squared from our right-hand side to Benteke, and it came to him from very, very close range, and Petr made a save. He made a decision. He guessed... Or tried to gamble where the ball was going to go. He waited for him to take it. He dived. He pushed the ball around the post. That was a brilliant save. When you look back at it, actually, it really is just one of the best saves I've seen. Because he was so close to goal, and he had to use all his goalkeeping instincts to to keep that out. But the one that uh, Forster, Forrester, Fraser thingy, the guy who made all the saves the other night, apart from this one, He didn't really do anything apart from do sort of like the kind of star jump thing, which isn't really much. Your goalkeeper like makes himself big. And you've got to give him some credit for that. But it wasn't like that save. It really wasn't. Uh, I think Ozil should have scored. Should have scored from there. Lauren Koscielny should have scored. Should have scored. Heading over from whatever, six yards out. And that's the kind of position he's normally very good in. There were other chances as well. Forster Fair Fraser thingy made lots of saves. Uh, Alexis cleared off the line, a couple of headers. Uh, you know, we had the chances. And those are the fine margins, really fine margins. The frustration that we all felt, and it was so tangible, the frustration uh, on uh, Tuesday night, uh, you know, the difference if one of those goes in. But that's what it is. It's about mastering the fine margins in a season and we don't seem to be doing that well enough at this moment in time. Three points from 12, not really the kind of form that a title-winning team should be showing, to be honest. But look, before I sort of wander off on this uh, all on my own, uh, maybe we'll bring in this week's guest and uh, have a chat about that and uh, the rest of what's going on this week. Uh, welcome back to the show to Tim Stillman. Hello there. Let's start with Southampton. I think we've got to start there. Uh, the reaction to a 0-0 draw was... Perhaps not just based on what we saw on Tuesday night, as frustrating as that was, and clearly having had all those opportunities and chances to score, um, you know, it is it is a big frustration, but the other teams around us all won, and this is another disappointing result in a, in a sequence of disappointing results. It felt like the weight of those, perhaps those last three or four Premier League games were, were there in the, re- in the reaction to this one.
1: Absolutely, yeah. I was, I was kind of talking about this last night. If this result, or sorry, that game, as much as the result had, had happened kind of in isolation after a couple of wins or seven points out of nine or something, you might write it off and just say, oh, it's one of those nights, you know, we met a good goalkeeper in good form, we made some chances, those games happen sometimes. But you're right, it's kind of what went on around it, you know, three points out of 12 and... You know, we we've it's been in the post for quite a while, even kind of towards the end of December, beginning of January. Mm. You look at um, when we played Newcastle at home, for example, and we really, really huffed and puffed to that 1-0 win. And I actually think we played better, certainly in the second half against Southampton than we did at any point in that Newcastle game. It's just, yeah, yeah. they're an incredibly poor team and we kind of got away with it. Um, so it's, it's been in the post for a little while but yeah just in, incredibly frustrating um, to miss those chances um, and you know to to see the midfield just really not functioning mm. and I thought it was quite a conservative team selection uh, from the manager I think that that really cost us because sure. I, I can kind of understand the reason for the individual decisions I can understand that at this point, Mikel Arteta is obviously completely incapable of playing at all. If he can't get in ahead of, you know, Ramsey and Flamini together, then I think we can just assume he is completely out of the picture. I can understand not wanting to rush El Nenny. I can understand that Pear got a bit of a roasting from Shane Long. I can understand that Chambers is a bit untested in midfield, but I think, not selecting at least one of those players was a bit of a mistake.
0: Do, do you think and, he? Um, do you think he could have gone with Cockalan and Ramsey? I mean, I guess with, with Cockalan of course, he's being. You, you could almost understand that as well, having seen what happened to Thomas Rositsky, you know, and the little yeah. cameo that he made uh, against uh, whoever the fuck it was, Burnley. <laughs> Burnley, yeah. Um, you know, and he picks up an injury having just come back, and I think you know if something similar had happened to Coughlin, um, you know. People would have been saying, "Well, look, you you started in two games in a row after he's been out for two and a half months," so that you know I can I can see why that's the case. But I think now, after what's happened with this, he's got he's got to be. He's got to be braver with the team selection. He's got to find a way to make that midfield work again, because it's really not at this moment in time. And, I, you know, people will say Flamini this and Ramsey that, whatever you think yeah. about the individual merits of those players. I don't think either of them have ever or have let us down in terms of their, their effort or application. No. But certainly as, as a partnership, they just don't seem any closer to gelling than they did when the first time they played together.
1: No, absolutely, and and Coquelin. To be honest, I completely defer to the manager on that one. He knows much more about what kind of shape he's in and what kind of reaction he might have had to the game on Saturday. You know, he might have had a bit of fatigue in the muscles, and you know that always makes things a little bit dangerous. And you know, he's not really a ball playing sort either. Um, and we've got and the manager probably reasoned that he was better used for the Bournemouth game on Sunday. So I, I do kind of understand that, um, but yeah, I, I think the kind of conservatism um, really hurt us. So I look at uh, it's really really geeky, but I looked at the the kind of passing combinations mm. um, from Tuesday night. Flamini does not feature in any of the top eighteen passing combos um, from the game. Um, Ramsey only features once in like the top ten. What you actually had was the top two was Ozil to Alexis and Alexis to Ozil, Mm. the top two passing combinations, which is very strange for a game where you don't score a goal. Um, And all of the other ones were kind of, um, you know, to bring to mind a clip from the Simpsons, it was kind of the fallback to the centre-back, the (laughs) centre-back to the fallback. Yeah, um, th- those, those were the top passing combos so basically the midfield was completely bypassed
0: that's interesting because um, Ramsey had kind of taken that role that the Ramsey-Ozel connection had been working r- quite well uh, when Ramsey came back into the centre because if you look back at uh, the top passing combinations before uh, Cazorla got injured it was usually Cazorla taking the ball off one of the center halves, Mertesacker yeah. uh, so Cazorla-Mertesacker was really high but but Cazorla-Ozel was really high as well
1: yeah, there's there's like there's a chain there, isn't there? Yeah. There's a very identifiable link. Um, on Tuesday, our best passer from the back was Petacek. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he de- he delivered some of the best passes of the game. I thought actually, yeah, um, which really says a lot because we had a couple of centre backs who, you know, it's not really their forte either. So it was all a bit disjointed, and it just looked to me like in the second half they almost made a really conscious decision just to definitely completely bypass that area and try and be a bit more direct. And it, it nearly kind of came off for us. But, you know, our, our finishing ended up being poor. And I think that was kind of a symptom of the game being so frantic. Sure. We didn't really have any control over it. We had to work really, really hard to get the ball in the box. So there was a real kind of lack of serenity there as well. Mm. Um, but, I mean, in isolation, I might have been able to compartmentalise this result a bit and just say, well, it's one of those things. But, you know, there's a frustration because you look at the way Leicester are playing at the moment. They just they attack every game and they try and take every single point they can get their hands on. And I think perhaps for us, there's been a bit of, you know, well, a, a nil-nil at Stokes, an OK result. A draw at Anfield's an OK result. And I think that's, you know... Maybe we've just been kind of chasing forth so long um, mm. that we've kind of lost the killer instinct in sure. terms of, no, if you're going to win the league, you go and win those games. Yeah.
0: I mean, uh, it's hard not to think that that pressure, because I think that is a pressure. And and whatever people might say about Leicester, I, I think they're there. And they they, re- they really don't have any pressure because there's no weight of expectation on Leicester to continue doing what they're doing. Everybody's predicted, well, they'll fall away, they'll fall away, and they haven't. Um, and I think that allows them a certain freedom, this complete underdog thing that they have. Whereas with Arsenal, everybody is saying, well, if Arsenal don't win the league this season, this is their mm. best chance, the best chance they'll ever have to win the league, etc., etc." And there's a lot of truth to that. There really is. Um, you know, I think that could be evident in the performance, particularly in terms of the finishing. Because the manager, for all the problems with midfield, and we might come back to midfield now in a minute, the manager mm-hmm. might say, "Well, look, we had twenty attempts on goal, we had gilt-edged chances to score. It's fine margins, and we've spoken on this podcast myself and yourself before about mastering those fine margins in games. That you know, all that frustration evaporates if we get one goal and we take three points. But there's a, there's sort of an inherent pressure when you're expected to win those games and, and challenge for the title. And, and that might then speak to the character within the squad, which I think, and just I'll state, I think has improved considerably over the last mm. couple of years anyway. But, you know, this this is a different animal, winning the league.
1: It is. And, um, you know, I think there's an extra pressure on Arsenal because of some of the teams that are in the mix. Um, it's kind of Leicester and Spurs. If Chelsea and Man United were in those positions... You know, there's almost a sense to which Mm. Arsenal would be the underdogs there. And with Man City, they probably are. But, you know, if Leicester and Tottenham are in the mix, there's really no hiding place for Arsenal there. Because I think if you get beaten to the punch by a couple of points by Chelsea and United, you've kind of got, you know, uh, your excuses in, um, as it were. Although I'd hesitate to call them excuses, but there's, there's absolutely no hiding place when it's Leicester and Tottenham. Um, and, you know, you look at Tottenham's run-in, for example, and actually Tottenham have played a lot of their hard games already. They're playing most teams at home now, um, ourselves included. Um, and so we're, pro- we're in a position now where we've got a lot of tough away games and we're going to have to take quite a few
0: points sure. um, from them. Do you, do you think that that pressure is something that the players will feel? I mean, certainly when we look at it and we think, well, the resources that we have... Leicester this time last season were bottom, more or less. They were like about to fight off relegation. Tottenham have always been Tottenham, Um, and obviously that's a thing that we look at as fans and we think, well, hey, if they can do that, why why can't we do that with with everything that we've got and everything that we should have? But do you think the players look at it in the same way? Well, they think, well, it's you know because it's Leicester, it'll reflect badly on us.
1: Maybe. I, th- I think the manager will feel it, whether yeah, yeah, the experiences I was say. Hmm. counteracts that. I'm not sure whether the players do. I'm not sure. I suppose the thing we've got going for us there is that um, in doing, you know, the race for fourth for so many years, we've chased down teams like Leicester and like Spurs before, who don't have our resources, who go on good runs, but then kind of grind to a halt because their squads aren't as big and as good as ours. And that's that 's mm. something that 's very much in our corner, um, particularly with spurs, because there 's history there, albeit i think I do think this Spurs team is a slightly different animal but we we do have that in our corner when it comes to chasing those two mm. um, Manchester city you know i I always thought they 'd win it, and I kind of still do um, albeit i I think it will be very close um but I just think they've got a couple of players or well they've got one player in particular who if he stays fit I I think that he'll get them over the line. Mm.
0: Aguero obviously yeah. Yes. Yeah, of course. Uh that that need for a clinical finisher was was evident um on Tuesday night against against Southampton. Um it's hard not to think that a player like that would make a huge huge difference to this Arsenal side, somebody who could put the ball away the way that Ian Wright put the ball away, for mm. example. The difficulty, of course, is that those players are really, really difficult to find. A striker of Sergio Aguero's quality is extraordinarily rare, and I think that's what we're going to have to contend with. Uh, people can complain about Giroud all they want, uh, and I understand the complaints, but the the, the strikers out there... That are, that are better than him, are few and far between, and if they do exist, they're at better clubs and bigger clubs than Arsenal. So we have to maybe look at different ways of getting our goals. And what you'd look at this season is perhaps the backup or the supporting cast, to Giroud, uh, who's got 18 goals, hasn't really done enough. Alexis mm. has got 10, and he spent two and a half, three months out injured. The top after that is... Uh, five goals from Aaron Ramsey and, and Theo Walcott. Um, we've got three from Joel Campbell, one from Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain. Are we at a point where we need to start making serious decisions about those players that um, if we can't find a striker to get us the goals that we need to win the title, mm. do we not then have to accept that some of the players... Um, some of the other players are not of the sufficient quality to make up the, that gap. We're going to have to bring in better players in other positions aside from striker. Is my long winded yeah. point?
1: Yeah, I think so, and I, I, I still think for a number of years, probably since Nasri left, I still think that Wenger wants he he. I am second guessing him entirely, but I think that there is one player he wants to complete that front three. I think he's happy, you know, definitely happy with um, Alexis playing, you know, principally on the left of that front three. I think he can make do with, you know, alternating Giroud and Walcott. I think that spot on the right, perhaps, I I still think that that's an area he'll look in the summer Mm. um, and perhaps, you know, someone of a kind of playmaker, goal scorer kind of ilk. Um, Because if you look at the options we've been using there over the last couple of years, they've all been a little bit Know, make do and mend. We've had Kazola in the front three, we've had you know Ramsey playing from the right of the front three, and they've all been you know good options and and kind of given us something. But I I don't think that Wenger's ever been convinced that, yeah, this is my guy and this is where he's going to play, you know, for the rest of the time that he's here. It's almost like plugging gaps. I, I really think that I think he wants his world class striker, and I don't think now you'll see another, you know, Welbeck-style signing up there. I think if he signs a striker, he's going to wait. It's going to be a bit Goldilocks. Um, Mm. But I do think, yes, he will really have his eye on someone else for that front three um, who can make goals um, because, as well, the likes of Chamberlain and Walcott aren't really making many goals at the moment either. Yeah, Um, And someone that, you know, perhaps can be a bit of an upgrade there. I I think that's that's somewhere he'll seriously have a look in the summer.
0: Someone who can do for Arsenal what Mares is doing for Leicester, basically.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I, Basically, he's, <laughs> never, he's never replaced Perez, is,
0: yeah.
1: is my estimation.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, that, that's why I sort of said it on the blog before this transfer window ended, that if he was going to buy two players, certainly a central midfielder was going to be one, and if he could find a player uh, to play as a wide forward, if, if he could find that right player... Uh, if it was available in January, I think he would have done it. But I don't think the player that he wants uh, is or will be available in January, which is no. uh, people might say, "Well, why didn't you do it in the in the summer, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. But you know that's a, that's a different thing altogether. So look, what do we do then about midfield? Um, if it were you, go well. Okay, so here here we go. We're playing Bournemouth on Sunday. Mm. Um, we, we've got to make it tick. We've got to make it work. What does he do? Uh, for this game that that might then be the solution for the rest of this season, because that's what we need to find. We don't need to find a solution for a, a game against Bournemouth. We need to mm. find a solution for big games, away games at Tottenham, away at Man City, away at Manchester United. You know, um, it, it's it's going to be tough.
1: It is. And um, I, I think what I would do and what I think he will do is just try and make Ramsey and Coquelin work. Um, I don't think it's ideal. I don't think their attributes are brilliantly matched there again we haven't really seen them play together that often and I don't think I'd have said off the top of my head that Cazorla and Coquelin would match each other as a kind of double pivot and that worked so mm. you never know but effectively I think it's just it's the simplest thing to do um, you know it's not an ideal partnership but they're both very good players and you know they'll get somewhere at least somewhere close to making it work effectively while Cazorla's not there I think Arsenal really miss a kind of a deep-lying player that can circulate the ball. But, you know, we don't really have one. His other option is to move Ramsey back to the right and bring Elneny in next Mm. to Coquelin. But I think that lacks a little bit of creativity, probably takes away Ramsey's goal-scoring kind of prowess, which I think we're going to need. So, I mean, personally, I would just kind of mash Ramsey and Coquelin together and you know, hope that they strike up some kind of partnership quite quickly. It's not that disruptive to the team. Um, it will definitely work better than Ramsey and Flamini has. Um Coquelin, similar type of player to Flamini, but much better, uh, much more proactive, much more likely to win you the ball back. Um, You know, so... That, that's probably what I would do. Mm. Um, and I'm pretty certain that's what he will do. And I think that's what we'll see on Sunday against Bournemouth. And I'm convinced he kind of held Coquelin back because he thought, I can probably only start him for one of the two games. And he thought that Bournemouth would be the game to do that.
0: Mm. What what do you think then about the right-hand side, Um I like Joel Campbell. I like what he's done this season. Mm. Credit to him for coming in and and working really hard and making a a decent contribution. But again, if we're going to talk about players who can help make the difference between a side, uh, you know, finishing the top four and win the title, I'm still not convinced that he's a guy who can get us enough goals to do that. Um, But does he, at this moment in time, present the best option for that right-hand side? He won't play Theo Walcott there. At mm. all, we know that he hasn't played him there for all, well over a year now, yeah. uh, because you know he's, he's chosen when Welbeck was fit, when Wilshire was fit, when Ramsey was out there. They were all ahead of him, yeah. and and it was perhaps a little bit telling on Tuesday night that when we needed a goal, we needed a goal to win that game, and the change that he made was to bring on Coquelin for for um, Flamini for Flamini, and you know I kind of got that substitution to an extent if the team in the final few mm. minutes were going to bomb forward and, and, and leave a bit of a gap at the back then at least cockle is his fresh legs and just has that defensive uh, awareness but Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain never even got a sniff and mm. you know he he's the kind of player that in the past the manager... Has put on to try and win us a game, and you go back to the days when we would end up with Will Tord, Canu, Henri, Bergkamp—you know, four strikers, yeah. sometimes five strikers. I mean, there've been times, haven't there, when when uh, Arsene Wenger has taken off a right back, and we've ended up with essentially five or six forward players yeah. to try and get to try and get a goal. What, what could, can we view anything about the way he views the right hand side?
1: Um, Yeah, I I think he'll stick with Joel Campbell just because he kind of brings a bit of balance to the team. And I I completely agree. I think where Joel Campbell's done well is uh, to use a kind of arbitrary rating system. Well, I probably thought he was about a five out of 10 player. And actually, it looks like he's about a seven out of 10 player, Um, you know, which which, which is kind of without wishing to sound too patronising good on him but I, I completely agree that it's not, still not a kind of title-winning quality. Um, it's a really difficult question because, I mean, Chamberlain's not exactly banging in goals and getting assists, albeit I thought he had a very decent game against Burnley. I do think he's been getting gradually better um, since Christmas, albeit from a fairly low bar, but I, th- I think he looks a little bit more sparky. The the kind of problem is that I think a front three of Chamberlain, Alexis, and Giroud just isn't really that balanced, and this this is the problem, the challenge I think Chamberlain's got in his Arsenal career that Chamberlain and Alexis on either side, um, I'm not sure how well that works really because they're both very very similar sorts of player, they're both kind of high risk high reward, they both like taking players on, and it's you know it's it's a bit it's a bit samey. And, you know, you're quite likely to lose the ball on both sides of the pitch um, with those two. So I I think it will be really, really interesting. I I was, I was thought this, the decision to bring Walcott on on the right was a bad one as well. I thought that game was much more set up for Chamberlain because when you've got a team that's sitting deep like Southampton, I think you've got to try and move them around um, and that Chamberlain does that. I think that, He'll start Campbell, but he might um, view Chamberlain as a good substitute option, Mm. particularly because Joel Campbell's energy levels aren't great either. He rarely lasts more than 65 70 minutes. So I think he might go with that balance early on and then perhaps unleash Chamberlain for the last 20 minutes if required Mm. uh, to give that kind of burst of energy. Because Bournemouth are going to, we know what we're going to get, they're going to work. Very, very hard. They're going to work us very, very hard. Um, And bringing on a player like Chamberlain for the last 20 minutes might be the way to go.
0: Mm. Interesting about Theo Walcott, what you said there, and I agree with you uh, completely. I think the lack of involvement he had on Tuesday night was... It was kind of astonishing to me, really, given that he played well over half an hour. Um, I know he had a really good chance on goal, which he missed, um, which is symptomatic of his his recent form. Mm. But, uh, you know, he's he's always been a player who has divided opinion. I think that's fair to say. Um, He's had his his critics, but for the most part, people have been... They've they've looked to see the the best of him in a yeah. way, shall I say. And it feels at this moment in time as if that tide has turned a little bit, that the frustrations that people have felt with this game for a long time are, are at the point of boiling over.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And 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 in one respect I can live with him not being hugely involved when he came on against Southampton. Joel Campbell wasn't either. Um, And like I was saying about the passing combinations earlier, it was very, very biased towards the left. We tried to go down the right and Southampton just completely shut it off. And so in the second half, Ozil moved over to the left next to Alexis. And, you know, those two and Monrail were were the ones that were really involved. Um, the, The problem for Walcott is he has to score when he gets chances like that. And if he doesn't, then he's literally contributing nothing. That's that's why you have him in the team, um, because you accept that he might not contribute much, but that when he does, it will be decisive. And so it's, it's a big problem for him to miss a chance like that. Mm. And also, I think there's a very good argument that, you know, while you might have sympathy with a player who is playing on the side of the pitch where none of the play is going, you probably have to ask, well, if you're paying a guy £140,000 a week, a, he shouldn't need, you know, it putting on a plate for him. That's that's that salary is for a difference maker. That salary is for someone like Özil and Alexis. Mm. And the whole reason all of the play went through them is because they're our best players. And A, everyone wants to give them the ball. And B, they go and get it. So mm. if you're paying someone 140,000 pounds a week, that's what you want. You don't want. People Somebody don't, yeah. who's just going to wait for the ball to come to them.
0: People, yeah, but that's the thing. You can see sometimes that people don't necessarily want to give Walcott the ball.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, and again, that's, that's fine in a sense if he's scoring. You can kind of live with that. But then when he gets that chance, you know, you, you're paying him big money. Mm. Um, and he, he agitated for that in quite a big
0: way and to play um, as a and to play as a a, a striker as somebody yeah. who could who could fulfill that role who could do that job as as a finisher
1: a- absolutely absolutely and ultimately that's that's always been his selling point his end product and if it's not there then well we know we we know by now after 10 years that he's never going to be brilliant at trapping the ball or a great passer like we know all that now it's it's been far too long for that to change so You know, he's in a position where he's got a couple of attributes. They're very, very useful ones. But if they're not firing to 100 percent, then, you know, he's ultimately useless. Um, And at at the moment, he looks useless, quite frankly. Um, So it's and it's just not what you want to see from someone who. Who is ostensibly your highest earning player?
0: Mm. All right, well, I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll leave you with the last word on that one. <laughs> I get myself in trouble. Um, final thing I wanted to talk about: Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain um, causing waves in the tunnel before, <laughs> before kickoff by 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 dancing a little bit before yeah. they went out for the warm up, and bizarrely, people have lost their fucking reason <laughs> over this. Um, yeah, it's. Um, it's really weird, isn't it? I mean, I think we are... You, you can judge certain things for example if you see a player in a game he's not making any effort you can talk about lack yeah. of heart and fight and desire even if in general those things are very intangible you know um, it was interesting to to see some some of the reaction after Tuesday and uh, you know how the players didn't want to win which is just a bizarre thing to say yeah. of, of course they wanted to win yeah they yeah. didn't and uh, you know uh, you can you can analyze that and you can criticize them for not winning but I don't think they did didn't want to win, which is r- ridiculous. But uh, the idea that Oxlade-Chamberlain like has generated all these column inches simply because he's there in the tunnel with his teammates having a little bit of a laugh before the warm-up in a game in which he didn't even play.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, it makes sense to me to have a little bit of a dance if you're just about to go and warm up, um, to be honest. <laughs> if he had done that walking off the pitch at the final whistle, I might have been a little bit worried. But <laughs> it, it, is, it just means absolutely nothing. It just It is absolutely... Like, if we win that game 1-0 in the last minute and Chamberlain still doesn't play, who on earth would have, like, read anything into that whatsoever? Mm. Um, and, you know, like... I was looking through clips of um, like Vieira and Keane in the tunnel and uh, it's not the famous tunnel altercation, but it's actually in the unbeaten season. And Vieira's just kind of laughing in the tunnel and Roy Keane looks at him and Vieira goes, oh, come on, smile, man. (laughs) And, you know, it's just like that was the season we went unbeaten. And then, you know, just put into YouTube, Diego Maradona warm up and have a look at the shit he did you know, when he was warming
0: up. Oh, there, there's one, isn't there? There's a brilliant clip of him. and just it's shooting the ball in the air. Yeah, there's music. Is it the life is life
1: yes, one? Yes, yeah. yeah. Amazing. Like, yeah, yeah. He was obviously a loser that never achieved anything. When I used to sit in the clock end and we used to watch like a David Seaman and Alex Manning warm up, they, they used to just play crossbar challenge. Like They, they weren't preparing for the game <laughs> at all. And again, but because, you know, because basically different you've got a lot of nervous energy before a game you're just about to go out and warm up you know and different people expend that nervous energy in different ways even if you wanted to micro analyze someone having a shuffle for three seconds in the tunnel (laughs) with his mates before the game but different people do do it in different ways and it's just it's one of those it's you know it's just kind of wise after the event that you know, someone probably does that in the tunnel or something similar before every single game that's played and like you know, in the dressing room as well that yeah, there's we don't music. see. Yeah. I'm I'm certain, you know, in every dressing room in the world someone has a little dance or something. It's just totally meaningless. But they,
0: they talk about it all the time, like someone's in charge of the music and it gets the players yeah. going. And then you can be quite sure that there's guys dancing and there's guys who are sitting there, you know, u- ultra yeah. focused. It's like the, the the tunnel bust up story um, after this one, that Wenger was having a go at Lee Mason and Ronald yeah. Koeman came over and got involved. And apparently this is Wenger uh, yeah. being involved in the tunnel. Like if people knew the shit that goes down in tunnels after yeah, yeah. every Premier League game, every single week, the stuff that's said, the stuff that happens, the physical um, uh, confrontations, all those things, you know, uh, this is just bizarre, but it just seems like, you know, every every little thing has to be a, a big thing these days.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, you read stories about Wimbledon were quite open about, you know, the ghetto blaster in the dressing room and stuff like that. And they used to, like, lark and piss about and... You know they used to like wind up the opposition and stuff and joke. You know it's just, you know it's it's just totally and utterly it means absolutely nothing. And it's just, mm. you know it's it's just amazing that this guy, particularly when the guy doesn't even play. Mm. Like how does that even plug into to the result at all? It's just it's it's absurd, really. Mm. I mean it's not like you know guys like Ian Wright or Thierry Henry ever, you know dance the jig or anything um yeah it's yeah. It's, it's absurd it really
0: do, is do do we know what the song was that he was dancing to
1: no i can't remember
0: right okay well maybe after we find maybe that he out,
1: loses we- points
0: yeah exactly if it's something really terrible then you know we we might advocate selling him straight away but uh not not for the dancing itself tim thanks very much as always great to talk to you Pleasure. Thank you very much indeed to Tim Stillman. You can find him on Twitter at Stillberto, at Stillberto. And, of course, read his column every Thursday on Arsblog.com. Right, we're going to look ahead to the uh, Bournemouth game. Don't have any real news on the team or anything yet. I'm kind of hanging on here on Thursday evening, hoping that something might drop before I finish this podcast. But if not, I'll just make something up or, I don't know, talk about clouds. Grr, clouds. And now, though, we've got some Amari Bischoff P.I. I I was sitting there, plotting my revenge against the
2: entire bear population for not killing Leo DiCaprio when they had a chance, when the guy walked into the office. Not you again, mister, I said. Every time you come in here, you make my head hurt. Look, uh, he said. "I, I really need your help this time. Okay, I said. What can I do? Well, he said... I'm having a big problem with. With what? I said. What is it you're having a problem with? I seem to be having a great deal of difficulty in. Difficulty with what, mister? Come on. You gotta help me out a little here. I know, he said. It's just that I'm finding it really tough to. Jesus Christ, I said. Why can't you just finish? He turned to me. Hey, if I knew that. I'd be top of the...
0: God damn it, I said. Right, we will have more from Amari Bischoff, P.I., on another Arscast in the very near future. So, looking ahead this weekend to to the game against Bournemouth. Well, myself and Tim have sort of talked about midfield a bit, haven't we, and what he might do there, what he might do on the right-hand side. I think those are the only decisions that he has to make, whether he'll be forced into another decision or not, or two. We'll have to wait and see. Um, on Tuesday, Nacho Monreal, he looked a bit kind of banjaxed there towards the end. He went off to get some treatment, and he was limping about the place quite badly towards the end of the game. So maybe Kieran Gibbs will come in for him if he doesn't make it. Aside from that, though, you know, I, I don't know what sort of changes he's going to make. Maybe Murtisacker back in the centre of defence. Uh, but aside from that, whatever he does with the midfield, you've got to hope that it works and it allows us to sort of exert some control over the games. Um, I agree with Tim when he was saying that it was all a bit it was all a bit hectic against Southampton. Even with all those chances, it never felt like we, we were truly on top of them in terms of dominating the game and controlling it in the way that we have done in the past. So we'll uh, we'll hopefully be able to do that uh, on Sunday against Bournemouth, and then after that, the fixtures woo they get a bit tasty, don't they? Because we've got Leicester at home, uh, then the FA Cup game against uh, Hull City, then Barcelona, Manchester United away. And the Swansea at home taught away. Oh yeah, it's all getting uh, it's all getting a bit hectic. So we do need to try and build some rhythm, and we do need to get some points on the board. We can't afford to drop any more points. It's as simple as that. We've slipped behind a little bit, and we need to get ourselves going again. So hopefully, hopefully we can do that. Remember, you can check out uh, everything that happens over the weekend, the live blog to follow the game with on Saturday, all the match reports, uh, all the stats, all the player ratings, and what have you. You'll find those on the website news.arsblog.com, or you can follow at arsblog news uh, and. Get get all the information there so uh, so that's that i'm gonna leave this particular podcast here there is no team news so Arr, clouds why are you so cloudy you fucking big gray and sometimes white clouds with rain in them stop it That should tell clouds. Let's keep fingers crossed for three points on Sunday. Man, we really, really need them. James and I will be here with an Arsecast Extra for you uh, on Monday, although I think we're going to be recording on Sunday uh, due to James going off uh, to do very nice things for other people, which is uh, to be commended. But we might talk about that on the podcast uh, when it's released on Monday. So uh, have yourselves a great weekend. Fingers crossed for the win. I'll talk to you on the next one. Until then, cheers. Bye-bye.
2: Arsenal Football Club today announced a freeze on season ticket prices for the new season. Unfortunately, due to global warming, that freeze has not remained in place. Prices have thawed out and fans will have to pay more. Chairman Sir Chips Keswick said, If the TV companies can pay a bit more, then why can't the fans? Payments will be deducted automatically from Children's Trust Funds.